Good morning. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible this morning, scoot next to somebody who does and share. We're studying through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 4. We're putting in at verse 32, and we're going to read down to verse 10 of chapter 5. The topic of those verses is that Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. The title of our message, Don't Be Caught Dead in Church. (laughs) Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that these very sobering words would find their application in our walk with you, that we would desire to know that life that is by the Spirit, the abundant life that you promise, and that we would walk in it and express it. We pray together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Almost every Bible commentator remarks that it's a good thing God doesn't still kill us on the spot for lying to the Holy Spirit. If he did, there might be many dead men and women at the end of our services, which is why I always have on my podium a generic funeral message. There is something worse than being instantly killed by the Holy Spirit for lying. Not being killed is worse 
because it allows you to go on living a lie. I'm glad that God doesn't kill on the spot. I may not have made it this far this morning, but I don't want to be among the living dead. I want to be alive to the Spirit of God. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are most alive when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And number two, you might as well be dead when you are lying to the Holy Spirit. First of all, in chapter four, you are most alive when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The first Christians were wonderfully alive to the presence and power of God working in their hearts and in their midst. They were motivated from within by the love of God shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. One example of this was their selling of possessions in order to care for the physical needs of one another. And so we read again in verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Imagine if we really shared a single heart and one soul. Everything that happened to you or that you felt would also happen to me and be felt by me. That's how close these first Christians were with one another. Conjoined twins are joined together at birth. We are to think of ourselves in the body of Christ, sounds weird, but as if we were all conjoined at our spiritual birth. When we're born into the family of God, spiritually speaking, we are conjoined to one another, connected with one another. And, and it could be said of us that we are of one heart and one soul. Now, we're still not very far into the history of the church, probably only weeks. Many of those who had received Christ were from far away, but they had chosen to stay in order to learn about the Lord from the apostles. Others who had been added to the church were undoubtedly poor. Those among them who had possessions sold them to care for those who needed any material help. We are under no obligation to sell all that we possess and share with one another. There are, however, many warnings throughout the New Testament about the spiritual dangers of the love of money. We automatically dismiss them saying, well, I don't love money. Give some away, you'll find out how much you love it. And if you're not giving any away, then you do. Uh, those who have wealth are exhorted to use it to serve the Lord. All of us are expected to be generous to one another and to use the things we acquire in this temporary world for the greater spiritual good. So yes, on the one hand, we do not have to sell everything that we own and pool it together so that we can all live communally or commonly and, and all of that. But having said that, doesn't cancel out the many exhortations in the Bible, in the New Testament, to generosity, to sharing, to giving, so that the body can minister uh, within itself and then to the world at large. The issue for us isn't whether or not we are selling our possessions, but what we are regularly giving to God. Now, the sharing described in these verses is an example to us. The church should be a place where your needs are known and then met by your brothers and sisters in Christ as they are prompted by the Holy Spirit. And it should be a place where you are prompted to meet the needs of others, whether they be material or spiritual. And if you really want to have your own needs met, come wanting to meet the needs of others. 
And you'll find that in your giving, in your sharing, in your uh, ministering one to another, things that you believe you have need of will fade away and you will just be being used of God uh, in that way to pour out to others. And so in verse 33, it says, With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. This verse is inserted here for a reason. It was precisely because the church was so vibrant and alive to the Holy Spirit that the witness of the apostles to the resurrection was so successful. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is true and needs nothing to prove it. I can be an absolute failure as a Christian this morning and still declare to you the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is a true fact. And you, if you're not a believer, need to be confronted by that. You need to deal with that. And you can point to me and say, well, Gene, you're a loser. You're, if, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to have any part of it. Jesus has still risen from the dead. You're still a sinner. You still need to get saved. At the same time, when you preach the resurrection, you are declaring that life is to have a new spiritual dynamic for the person who believes in Jesus and is saved. When that dynamic is being exampled by other believers in the church, then it becomes a powerful aid to your testimony and to your witness. And so the apostles especially were out sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they could point to the church and say, this is the kind of thing that this life produces. There's a joy, there's a fellowship, there's a sharing, there's a love that you know nothing about in the world that you could never find or produce in any other way, but the Holy Spirit is doing it. Look at what's happening over here. Look at the sharing. Look at guys like Barnabas, and it was a powerful aid. It says here that great grace was upon them all. That struck me as kind of a soundbite that described the first church. And I realize that we use sound bites to describe churches. Sometimes people say, well, you know, they'll ask you about a certain church, and you'll give a one-sentence answer that is your soundbite about that particular church. Sadly, sometimes people say, well, what's, what about that church? And you'll say, that church is involved in a church split right now, so don't go there or this or that. But, you know, we want to have a good positive sound bite. Afterwards, you can give me, well, you actually already do this. I don't know if you realize this, but sometimes people ask you, wait, what's going on at Calvary Chapel? And whatever you say to them, that's your sound bite. That's your assessment of the entire ministry. Would to God that it would be able to be said of us that great grace is upon us all over there. One of the gals after second service, she came, or after first service, she came by and she says, I have a sound bite. She goes, we are the Birkenstock of churches. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Birkenstock makes well-fitted sandals that keep you healthy. And she says, we are the well-fitting, healthy church. And I thought, okay, I'm not ready to put it on our letterhead just yet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, and I'm open to all these suggestions. But anyway, I would to God that it would be, it should be said of any church if, especially if an unbeliever asks, hey, what's going on over there? He's, Great grace is upon them. God is pouring out his unmerited favor. And what a great thing to tell Jews. And you remember, we're still in the period of the church history when everyone involved was Jewish. 
And here were Jews who were used to the rigors of the law and trying to be self-righteous and to be good enough to stand in the presence of God. And then they saw this remarkable living organism, the church, right in their midst. And people were saying, great grace, unmerited favor, unearned, undeserved favor is in that group. They have been declared righteous by God. There's nothing they need to earn. Man, if I'm a Jew, I'm going to sign up for that. I want that. Now, the remaining verses of chapter 4 get more specific about this aspect of selling and sharing, and they end up with the example of Barnabas. Verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. The needs were physical and material, and so those with possessions met them by selling. Now, notice the largeness of their generosity. They didn't just have a garage sale. They sold the garage. It says they sold their lands and their houses. I mean, today, and nothing wrong with this. I mean, we might have a missions program or a missions trip, and people might have a garage sale uh, and, and sell all of the junk that you don't want in your garage anyway. Well, that's fine. And then give the proceeds to the church. These people would just sell their garage. Hey, the church has a need, let's sell our house. What's a house anyway? And, and so it just, again, we're not under that obligation, but what a largeness of generosity. And we should all desire that largeness of generosity and, and just be in touch with the Lord in terms of what he does want us to give and do. Now, there are two principles, it seems, at least, behind their actions. The first is that each believer thought of him or herself as potentially being able to meet the needs of others. When they thought of the church, they thought of themselves. I am the church. We are the church. And so if they heard of a need, and probably they were seeking out needs, uh, asking about needs, they felt that they could be able to meet it. And then the second principle, obviously, is that they did what they could to meet the needs they became aware of. And it involved personal sacrifice. But you get the distinct impression that they did it all joyfully. No one was under duress or compulsion. The apostles didn't get up on Sunday morning and say, hey, we have a project over here and we need you to sell your spare car and give us your tax return. Uh, You know, that's a favorite thing this time of year for churches to do, to remind you that you didn't expect to get any money back and so maybe that money is the Lord's. And so just give us your tax returns. And then I always raise my hand and say, if I owe, can you help me with that? Oh, of course not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it doesn't work that way. But uh, anyway, so, you know, they, they, they just, they did it joyfully. The apostles weren't suggesting this. The idea that they laid it at the apostles' feet was that it was spontaneous. Like, you know, Peter's up there talking, preaching, uh, you know, ministering, and all of a sudden somebody comes, hey, I just sold my house, ah, you know, and some bags of gold, you know. I mean, it was, it was just all joy and love. The poster boy for this spirit-led sharing is Barnabas. Verse 36, and Joseph, who's also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. Nicknames can be cool, or they can ruin your life, but uh, (laughs) some nicknames can be cool. They can describe a person's nature or character. 
And, and it, I've said, every time there's a nickname in the Bible, I, I say this, and I, I like it. If we gave you a nickname, what would it be? What would it be? Would it be the son or the daughter of encouragement or the son or daughter of discouragement? Would it be the helper or the hinderer? Uh, our leadership does have a list of... No, I'm just kidding. It just struck me. It's kind of funny. It says here the apostles had these nicknames for people. They gave Barnabas this nickname, and I thought, well, maybe they're giving nicknames to everybody because it's hard to remember names. You know, there's like 8,000 Christians, and so they're saying, well, that's the son of encouragement. There's the daughter of depression right there, <laughs> you know. And so you just, but be honest with yourself. I think, I think people really are capable of being honest with themselves if you're honest with yourself, if you know what I mean. Uh, I mean, you know, what, don't ask other people who are going to lie to you. You know, don't go up and say, hey, do you think I'm a great person? Oh, yeah, you're a great person, you know, and they, make sure their hands aren't behind their backs with their fingers crossed. But, uh, you know, you know what you're like. And if you're, what would your nickname be? And if it's something that is not flattering, work on it. Change that. Let the Holy Spirit, you know, do a work in your life. Oh, gosh. Somebody just got their nickname. Maybe we could give nicknames during the baptisms, you know, like a christening name or something. And your nickname is. Anyway, Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is from the tribe of Levi. Pause on that for a moment. Under God's law, Levites were not allowed to own property. They were to serve the Lord in the temple and were to be cared for by the gifts of the people. Now, here was Barnabas caring for the people by giving them a gift of property that he was not even supposed to own. It's a spiritual jewel dropped in the path of our study. What the law could not do in getting Joseph to obey, grace accomplished through Barnabas once he was saved. Grace is always a better motivator than the law. And again, the apostles could say, hey, look at Barnabas. Here's a Jew who was disobeying the law of Moses, but who is now obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. What law could not do, grace is able to accomplish. I'm up for that. And so you've got Jews signing on, signing on, bring me into this organism. These first Christians in this first church at Jerusalem, alive with the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, you could see it, you could feel it as they ministered by grace one to another. It was nothing short of supernatural, and that's why it was about to be disturbed from within their own ranks. In chapter 5, we'll see that you might as well be dead when you are lying to the Holy Spirit. Now, let me establish from the start that I believe Ananias and Sapphira were born-again believers in Jesus Christ. First of all, back in verse 32 of chapter 4, it's made clear, I believe, that this story is dealing with believers. Nothing in the story indicates this couple was unsaved. Secondly, even though we're told Satan filled their hearts, we're also told that they conceived this plan themselves. They weren't possessed, just influenced. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you won't listen to the devil and his lies. Jesus once looked at Peter, who was resisting him, and said to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter wasn't demon-possessed, but he was being influenced by the devil. 
Thirdly, physical sickness and even death is a discipline God sometimes uses in the Bible. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in 1 John chapter 5 as a discipline that is available to God in the New Testament era. We should not assume every illness or death is disciplinary. In fact, we're warned not to. Don't think that it was a sin unto death, the reason that that believer died. Believers still die, and we shouldn't think that it's always a penalty or a punishment. But neither should we assume that God would no longer use illness and even death as a discipline. Paul said to the church at Corinth, to those who were getting drunk before the communion service and not sharing their food with the poor people of Corinth, he said, some of you are sick and even dying. And he intended to mean that as a discipline that God was bringing in their lives. And then finally, lying to the Holy Spirit was the sin that brought them under this judgment. Every unbeliever confronted with the gospel is lying to the Holy Spirit, but God doesn't kill them for it. He's seeking to save them. It is precisely because Ananias and Sapphira were saved that God acted as he did to discipline them. And so in verse 1, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and he brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Was it jealousy that motivated them because they wanted to have the same esteem that was afforded to Barnabas? Was it greed that caused them to withhold a portion? Was it pride because they wanted the accolades of the apostles? Were they trying to get into a position of power and influence in the church? Yes, 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 and many more sad, dark thoughts could be added to that list. The contrast here is between those filled with the Holy Spirit, like Barnabas, and those who let self control rather than the Spirit, and then they conceive their own plans. And so in verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? How, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. First, notice what I mentioned earlier. This was conceived by them in their hearts. The Bible indicates that you can be filled with the Spirit and bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, Or you can continue to live according to your flesh and bring forth the works of the flesh. The real impact of Ananias and Sapphira is that they were believers, just like you and I, who choose to live in the flesh rather than by the Spirit. It literally killed them. It will kill us, though we go on living. It it wounds and hinders and destroys our spiritual life. You're saved but you're living life in the flesh, for the flesh, selfishly rather than spiritually. If God hadn't killed them, they may have gone on with their charade for a long time. In some churches, they would have been put in charge of the benevolence ministry or given some other position of influence. Wow, did you see what Ananias and Sapphira did? Sure. Wouldn't they be great over this ministry or teaching a small group over here or doing that or doing this. You see, God allows us to see into their hearts something that we don't always have the luxury of doing. Uh, and, and if we did, we, we would be better off. 
How did Peter know about this? The Holy Spirit gave Peter what the Bible calls a word of knowledge. It is information given to you supernaturally that you either could not or did not discover naturally. It is a spiritual gift. And so as Ananias came, Peter was told by the Holy Spirit, Ananias has sold the possession for a greater figure, and he is lying about what he's doing. And so is his wife, Sapphira. And so while Ananias was ready for his plaque, <laughs> Peter laid it out. And I like it. I, I, you know, obviously we don't have the whole conversation all the time, but, you know, I know sometimes people think I'm a little harsh, but I would probably say, hey, now, Ananias, uh, gosh, that's neat. You know, that's a lot of money. And I, it would take me about a half hour to finally say, so why are you lying about it? Peter just said, got right into the middle of it, right from the beginning, and, and laid it out. There's nothing like speaking the truth in love. Peter also establishes here that God is a respecter of your personal property. Your possessions are yours to do with as you please. Sometimes people say, oh, well, everything belongs to God. Yes and no. Ultimately, sure. But Peter says, what, you know, you, you should have the attitude that everything you've got is from God, but they're yours. It's your car. It's your house. It's your wallet. What's in your wallet? You know, it's, it's all yours. It belongs to you. Do whatever you want with it. Just, you, you know, you do with them as you please, but you'd be smart to use them to please God. But that's left up to you. Now, again, and, and before we leave these two verses, I must mention an important doctrinal point. Peter first said that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he said Ananias lied to God. Peter believed that the Holy Spirit was God. He believed in what we would call the Trinity, that God is one, existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What happened next probably surprised Peter as much as anyone. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young man arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Ananias is the first believer in the New Testament era to be slain by the Spirit. Well, he was. Next time your Pentecostal friends tell you they were slain by the Spirit, tell them, were you then resurrected? Because the, you know, the, the model for that is Ananias. But anyway, I apologize for that, sort of. You know, we believe in all the gifts of the Spirit. We don't have any problem with that. You know, the, uh, we're not cessationists. You know, people speak in tongues. They have prophecy. God can do healings and miracles and stuff. I do have a problem biblically with people being slain by the Spirit. This is a common Pentecostal experience where typically people come forward uh, and the pastor speaks or holds out his hand and they fall backward. Hopefully, deacons are back there to catch them. Sometimes whole auditoriums fall backwards as people, they, I've seen one guy, he takes his coat off and he, wah, you know, and everybody, ah, you know, is slain by the Spirit. And uh, is the Spirit powerful enough to do that? Sure, he's powerful enough to kill you. Uh, is that a true biblical experience? It's a true experience, but I just don't really see it in the Bible. And so people say, well, how, how does that happen? Uh, in some cases, it's a learned behavior. I remember one time years and years ago, I think it was uh, Gino's class at one of the Christian schools, 
And uh, I was doing a little devotional that morning. I asked the kids, you know, I said, hey, what would you guys do this weekend? And one of the girls, she's like, I mean, they're like seven years old, seven or eight years old. And, and this one gal, she goes, we went to this crusade. We went to the Benny Hinn crusade in Bakersfield. Benny Hinn is one of these guys. And uh, I said, hey, what happened there? And she goes, I was slain by the Spirit. I go, oh, really, what happened? She goes, well, you know, people were falling down. And so when he came by me, I fell down. Well, now, if you're seven years old and your parents are falling down and everybody's falling down and you're falling down, by the time you're 17 or 27 or 37 or 47, you're going to believe that that is the most genuine thing in the world because you don't even remember being seven years old, but you know that from the time you were seven years old, whenever the pastor came by and breathed on you, it wasn't his breath so much that stunk as it was, (laughs) this is what you do. You fall backwards and and you are in the power of the Holy Spirit. And... uh, I'm just sad about that because there are plenty of genuine behaviors and experiences that we can have with God. We don't need to manufacture disingenuous ones. Uh, And so I do have a problem with people being slain by the Spirit. Not with the Spirit. He can do it. He just doesn't. And the only person that he really slayed in the New Testament is Ananias and Sapphira, and he killed them, and it wasn't a good thing. So what happened next surprised Peter. He was slain by the Spirit. Some people think it's strange that Ananias was buried without consulting Sapphira. Well, after all, she should have been immediately notified and would have been under normal circumstances. But these were not normal circumstances. Once Ananias was slain by the Spirit, I think Peter probably knew he would next have to confront the wife. Ananias' death was concealed because something spiritually serious was going on. Young men arose and took Ananias away. How'd you like to have that duty? I mean, did they have dead body duty? And then, you know, I mean, we have ushers and Sunday school teachers. We don't have anybody really that's here to take away dead bodies. And uh, so somebody had, would have to volunteer for that. As distasteful as it would be for us, it was unheard of among the Jews because the Jews, remember all these Christians were Jews by tradition, Jews didn't touch dead bodies. It made you ritually and ceremonially unclean. It was something that was really taboo. And yet here was dead Ananias, and there was Peter, and some young men arose, and they dealt with the situation. I'm sure this wasn't in any job description that they were dealing with at that time. And they're examples of servants doing what needs to be done Uh, at the time that it needs to be done. Good example for us. Now, I'm going to guess that Peter and the others prayed about how to handle Sapphira. God directed them, and I'm certain that they were hoping that she would repent. Verse 7, now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Peter acted with authority and boldness, but there's no reason to think that he wasn't weeping when he did. Once again, the duty of body removal fell upon these young men. Maybe these were guys Peter and the apostles were discipling. And so they might as well know from the beginning that ministry can be very difficult. People are not always what they seem, and sometimes they need to be told things they don't like to hear. In this case, the people died. More often, they want to kill you. 
That's how that works. First service understood that. You do not. But anyway... It's not unusual for God to make a strong example at the beginning of a new phase of his dealing with his people. You know, people say, well, why doesn't God kill people today? There wouldn't be anybody left, for one thing. But, uh, you know, because God, sometimes he starts something new, and he wants to punctuate it and emphasize this is new, and it's real, and it's serious. It's life-changing And I'm going to show you just how important it is. And so in the Old Testament, at the dedication of the tabernacle in the wilderness, God struck dead Nadab and Abihu because they offered what's called strange fire to the Lord, a non-prescribed offering, and God killed them. And it was very serious. When the city of Jericho fell, God said, don't touch any of the spoil. And Achan took some of the spoil. He was found out, and he and his family were taken out and stoned to death. Both of those were the beginnings of new movements, as it were, with the people of God. The establishment of the tabernacle in the wilderness after they'd been delivered from Egypt. The taking of the promised land under the guidance of Jericho after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The Jews of the first century would think on these biblical precedents and they would say, this is the kind of thing God does when he is starting something incredible, something wonderful. And this is why you think, man, nobody's going to go to that church. We talk about seeker-sensitive churches. (laughs) I mean, if we're not going to preach the gospel, we're sure not going to kill anybody for coming to church, you know. I mean, that's not going to draw anybody in. But if you were a Jew, and sometimes we need to think from that Jewish perspective, there would have been an awe and a reverence and an immediate understanding. God did this because what he is doing generally is so fantastic and important, it can't be done half-heartedly. It has to be all the way. And it would emphasize and punctuate what God was about. Ananias and Sapphira were not the last believers ever to lie to the Holy Spirit. It's just that God doesn't always kill us for doing it. We thus end up living a lie. In a spiritual sense, you would be better off dead than to go on living a lie. Instead of killing you, God calls upon you to examine your heart. You have tools to help you examine it, notably the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Think of it like this. The next time you're about to commit that secret sin or act hypocritically or pridefully, think about whether or not you want to be struck dead on the spot. Well, of course you don't. But that isn't really your motive for acting with honesty and integrity. Your motive is God's love for you. It's not so much that you don't want to die, but that you want to live alive by God through the Holy Spirit. It's a quality of life issue. You want the quality of spiritual life exampled by Barnabas and the others in the first church. And so, again, it's not that you don't want to die. It's that you want to live. You want to live the kind of life that is possible in the Holy Spirit, the kind of life that's exampled by these people, the kind of life where you would look at something and think, I can only explain that by saying God is doing it. People don't act that way. 
They don't love that way. They don't share that way. They don't, with, with, with no coercion, with nothing. And this is why sometimes we get annoyed at some church programs because they, you know, there's coercion and pressure and manipulation to get you to do something. And then they stand back and say, look what God has done. God didn't do it. He allowed it to happen, but, but we did it. We made you sell your car and give your tax return and do these other things. We made you do this. Look what we have done. But in the first church, they were just sharing the gospel, talking to people about Jesus, telling them what he did when he was alive and what he said and comparing Scripture with Scripture. And it was all genuine and real and spirit-led. And people wanted that. They wanted to be a part of something like that. It's a quality of life issue. Miracle Max once said, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. We don't want to be just slightly alive. We want to be fully alive, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then led by Him into spontaneous generosity towards others that spreads grace all over the place. When we are fully alive and great grace is obviously upon us, it gives power to our witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for these things. I suppose we should be thankful that you haven't killed us. We all deserve that in a sense, Lord, because none of us can walk perfectly in the Spirit. But it's not that you want to kill us, it's that you want to give us life. It's that you want us to be so alive to you, Lord, that uh, we are an example to others of, of what a changed life looks like in our walk with you, in our marriages, in, in everything that our life touches, uh, which ultimately gets down to possessions and material things. And so, Lord, I just pray for myself first and, of course, all my brothers and sisters here that we would have a new desire to, to be alive unto you so that we wouldn't be caught dead in church, Lord, living a lie. I pray that we would get alone with you if we need to or maybe in the quiet of this moment right now and make some adjustments. Give up those secret sins. Quit being hypocritical. Get back to a place where it's just you and I, you and us, walking together, Lord, in honesty and integrity. Do that work, we pray. Would to God that it could be said of us as a body of believers, Lord, that great grace is upon us. That people would want to come in here not afraid that they would die, but knowing that they would find life and that more abundantly. Lord, your resurrection and everything else we read about in the Bible is true regardless our success or failure as individuals and as a church. But how much better, Lord, to be able to point to something that is, speaks of life and living. And so, Lord, do that work, we pray. It's a simple work. There's really nothing we need to do except agree with you and believe you and then walk with you. Lord, the, the first Christians in the first church, all they did was love you and know you, and you did these things in them and through them. We thank you. Lord, while we're here this morning and while Christians are praying and getting their hearts right with you, I also want to give an opportunity to any who are unbelievers for them to 